Hi, I'm Dr. Nicole Trubitsky here with Dr. Travis McMacken, coming to you from the Lindenwood Religion Department, and this is the second installment of a series that Dr. McMacken and I have been working on, uh, covering Colin Gutton's book, Becoming and Being, The Doctrine of God in Charles Hartshorn and Carl Barth. It just so happens that I know a little bit about process theology, and Dr. McMacken knows a heck of a lot about Carl Barth. So we're working today on this first chapter, the first true chapter in Gunton's book. And this chapter is on the rejection of classical theism by Charles Hartshorn. So welcome. Thank you. And welcome to my office. We switched offices this time around, and uh, I'm glad to have you all here. I'm slightly worried. I'm watching the mirror in the frame and just hoping it doesn't fall on me. Promise. This office has a history of things falling in it, uh, and I'm happy to discuss that offline sometime. It's the ghost. <laughs> so what's our chapter about, you said? Rejecting classical theism? So our chapter is, indeed, about rejection of classical theism. And I like classical theism, but like Hardshorn, there are a few things that process theologians in general have taken issue with. And Gunton does a really good job in this chapter bringing out three of the major places where process theologians would argue with classical theism. And so he begins with Hartshorn's rejection on philosophical and rational grounds. And what he says is, the objection is that basically God cannot be both actually related to existence and then totally unaffected by the events of the universe. Because to be in relation means to be affected. And to have an ontological status of a subject rather than an object means to be affected. Now, the second objection that Hartshorn raises is one on metaphysical grounds. And this rejects the idea of substance as an inadequate explanation for reality. And then the third objection that process theologians and Hartshorn tend to make is on moral grounds. And this is that if God remains totally unaffected by the rest of existence, then no act of a finite being can affect the overall state of affairs, and that worship and prayer are simply self-regarding. That God would have no compassion for existence, and that begins to have Christological connotations. And that choices that people make for good or for bad make no real difference, and therefore it is quite easy to fall into nihilism. So that's a broad overview of what uh, Gunton discusses, and I think uh, that you might... What would be the Bardian take on this? <laughs> well, we'll save that for the second half of the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned how knowledge works, um, and he does this complicated thing with birds and internal and external relations, so I was wondering if you could explain that one to me. So for any of you who happen to know process theology, Charles Hartshorn was also an avid bird watcher, and the stories go that when he would get off the plane in uh, Claremont, to come for conferences, that if we weren't, if someone from the school wasn't there to grab him when he got off the plane, the bird watchers would get him, and they, <laughs> they would take him off to watch birds, uh, and we wouldn't get him back until right before the talk was supposed to start. So Harsham was an avid bird watcher, and so many of his examples in his books have to do with birds. And so he notes that in order to know, to have any knowledge, is to be internally related. 
And so Hartshorn gives the example of seeing a woodpecker. If you see a woodpecker, the woodpecker being seen is not affected, at least in that moment. But the person who does the perceiving is internally affected. Now, the bird in its own moment might have a response to that, but that in order to perceive, to have any knowledge of anything, we are actually perceiving the immediate past. So we don't perceive our moments that are coming into being simultaneous to us. So we're always kind of living slightly in the past when we perceive. And so to have any knowledge of anything, to be a subject, one has to be internally related to an external object. So how does the external relationship relation work? Oh, can you be more specific? Well, he talks about, isn't there a way in which the bird is also related to the one seeing it? The bird can also be related, but it would be internally related. So it can be related to a knowing subject as an object. Mm -hmm. So it there stands in a kind of external relation, okay. which then gets brought in by the perceiver in an internal relation. Interesting. Cool. Now, on the second point, you were talking about the inadequacy of substance to uh, serve as a description of reality. And that's one of the big um, watchwords in uh, certain uh, areas of Barth studies, in Barth interpretation, is this distinction between what gets called subject metaf or substance metaphysics and actualis actualism or actualist metaphysics. So uh, that's one thing that really struck me going through this chapter and I think made it kind of difficult for me to uh, wrap my head around what Hartshorn is up to, because I think there are important convergences, but also differences between how both Hartshorn and Barth relate to the classical theist picture, um, because they both want to criticize it, and they both want to modify it. And it seems to me the only question is, uh, what do they criticize? How do they criticize it? Why do they criticize it? And on what grounds do they modify it? That's the only question? Well, there's three, four or five of them there, but <laughs> that, that's the constellation of questions that I think are uh, in play here. Because, again, they're all modifying. And so, uh, Hartshorn's not happy with a substance view of reality. Bard is equally unhappy with a substance view of reality. Uh, and then they have to figure out how they go about approaching that. Uh, part of what happens on the Bard studies side is a tendency to want to reinterpret tra this, the tradition and say uh, what gets depicted as classical theism is kind of just made up by modern people and doesn't actually reflect the dynamics of the tradition uh, as it's developed. And so there's a number of places where Hartshorn, or where Gunton's discussing Hartshorn discussing Thomas, right? Yes. Uh, so we're, we're at a number of levels removed here. Um, and, and hearing you do the little introduction there uh, sparked into my mind, Thomas describes God as uh, actus purus, right? Full uh, actuality, pure actuality, uh, where there's no more potentiality. And um, it seems that if we apply that kind of thinking to the question of knowledge, uh, Hartshorn's unhappy with saying that God, he reads the classical tradition as saying God is externally related to everything that God knows. Right? And so Hartshorn's complaint is like, no, if you know something, you're internally related to it. It makes a difference to you somehow in your mind, in your thinking, whatever. It impacts you, it changes you, and so on. So he wants to say it's, it's uh, inconsistent to think that God can know something without somehow being impacted by that knowledge. So uh, one of the questions I have for you is, if God is actus purus, like Thomas says, wouldn't that mean that God just 
is in God's being, the sort of thing that knows everything in this kind of internal way and is impacted by this, but in, in a, not in the sense of temporal unfolding duration, but in the sense of eternally always being this particular God who knows all and is impacted by all. And so that would seem to me, in some ways, to incorporate some of Hartshorn's concern within a slightly more traditional approach to say that that inter internal relation is there, there is a way that all of these other creaturely realities impact God, but it does so uh, eternally, so to speak, and has just always been part of God's being. Does that make sense? I rambled a bit there, but yeah, I have a basic idea what I'm getting at so uh, ham-fistedly. So, to say that God is pure act is something that uh, process philosophers would agree with. Okay. Because to... Because existence is becoming mm -hmm. in process. And so, that kind of constant, that act, that activeness, that verbiness mm -hmm. of God is... Verbiness. That verbiness. Hashtag verbiness. <laughs> Verby theology. As opposed to the nowiness. <laughs> and so that would, be, that would be highly supported. Now, the problem comes in thinking that... In how that thinking plays out in the determinism. And it's easy for us to say, oh, well, God just knows everything eternally. And process theologians and Hartshorn in particular argue that that's easy to say, except for when we play that out logically, it just is another kind of determinism, which in the end leads to a kind of nihilism. Hmm. Well, that was what, the determinism section was something else that I, I thought we could talk about. He's, he really gets into that more on page 17, and my, my previous question was kind of anchored in page 14. Uh, this one's kind of anchored over in 17, and moving on to 18, he's, he's worried about this kind of causal determinism, and does that evacuate human action from all moral significance and so on. Um, you know, typical theology problems. Um, but if God is actus purus, in the sense I suggested, where all of this relating to the world and being, having this internal relation to all of that is internal to God's being in all eternity, right? And if we don't think of eternity as somehow coming before history so that it uh, prejudices it ahead of time, if we think of eternity more as the transcendent uh, ground of history somehow or the transcendent quality that, uh, that accompanies history uh, as it unfolds, uh, would not all of that creaturely agency and self-determination, that's unfolding historically, then be understood as just part of the divine being, eternally, because God is actus purus. All of this is already, always already, a part of who God is. Does that make sense? It does. I, um, I understand the words that you have said. <laughs> well, that's a start. <laughs> But, that might be all that I understand, too. I mean. <laughs> so, to be careful, though, at least from the process perspective, things that are not determined, that haven't actually happened in the created world, exist in God as possibility. And God is aware of every possibility that could, could ever be. And yet... It doesn't become determined until a choice is made by an event. 
but an actual occasion. And so as actual occasions come into being and make choices, it is an exercise of free will, and the choice becomes determinate. It becomes actual at that point. And so God then has to be affected by, internally affected, by the actual choices of, of actual occasions. Mm -hmm. And the possibilities then are just that. They were things that could have been and weren't. And then for the next occasion, for the next moment of coming into being for God, all of the possibilities are there and held inside of God. But God is not aware of exactly what will be until an occasion makes a choice to constitute itself. Mm -hmm. I think there, I think there's a lot of closeness here. Um, what I would—it seems to me that in the process imagination, uh, God is passing through time with um, uh, with the process of history, with, internal to it, and watching it unfold, taking part in how it unfolds, uh, influencing and being influenced by how it unfolds. Whereas in the kind of um, theological ontology I'm imagining. Uh, all of that unfolding uh, just is the actuality that God is. So it is that not pantheism? That's a good question. Okay, that's, a very that's good one question. we can take up in another one. But the, I mean, that's what I I hope to I hope to guard against that by talking about the eternal character of this actuality. Okay, but that raises in my mind it that that you know, rings a bell in my mind in terms of uh, the discussion Gunton had of Hartshorn and God's dipolar reality, right? That's kind of where he ends, and that's what the next chapter is going to be on, right? Yes. All right, we had some technical difficulties, but we're back. And I believe that when we cut out, I was just about to ask you to explain uh, Hartshorn's understanding of God as dipolar. Okay, so for process theologians, there are two basic natures in God. One is eternal, and the other is more internally related and affected by existence. And then those two natures are connected to each other, internal to God. And we'll talk about, in the next chapter, the dipolarity of God and how that affects the way process theologians think about how God affects the world and how mm -hmm. the world is affected by God. So in my mind, thinking about this kind of twofold character, where there's this aspect that's somehow transcendent and eternal, and this other aspect that's more temporal and uh, intrinsic to the world, this just rings all kinds of Christology bells for me. Thinking in terms of God's or Jesus's human nature and divine nature, how Chalcedon says they relate and all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if Gunton's going to do it, but does Hartshorn make the connection between this dipolar doctrine of God and a Christology? Is that ingredient to his thinking, or uh, does he do it all just more in the doctrine of God? So when Whitehead and Hartshorn lay out a dipolar doctrine of God, this is theology about God and God's nature. And so I don't expect our next chapter will deal with Christology too much, but one of the advantages of process theology, and this thinking about God as dipolar is that it allows for Christological claims to be made 
that would have been, I think, I think, biased as I am, awfully helpful to the early church fathers as they were struggling with making these Christological claims. The how of how Christ is both uh, human and divine is easier to conceptualize and think about once we have a dipolar mm -hmm. view of God. And of course, they had all kinds of trouble trying to figure it out, and arguably never did, <laughs> satisfactorily. So uh, that'll be interesting to get into. I hope that Gutton will take us into the, the more Christological details, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. For Hartshorn, um, is, it this, is it the Christology that funds his dipolar thinking about God and God's nature? Or is he getting this from some other kind of source? So this comes from Whitehead's development of how... Uh, both limits and novelty can be introduced in existence based on how we incorporate data from the past. Hmm. And so, boy, that got real technical real fast. <laughs> so the, the view of God as dipolar comes from Whitehead struggling with how the world can possibly work the way that it does. And as he struggled with these ideas, the notion of God as dipolar began to develop. Okay, so it's not based directly on the Christology. Whitehead develops it independently, and then Hartshorn kind of ties them together. Yeah, Whitehead develops it as a response to the physics of the day, the actual okay. the physics of the day. Mm -hmm. And then it just so happens that in good metaphysics, it tends to lend itself to other areas <laughs> of theology. Cool. Well, the only other thing I wanted to do is talk about some other places I saw some interesting convergences. Uh, between how we're having a Hartshorn described here and uh, a, a more broadly Bardian approach to theology. So I think I had two or three um, spots that I wanted to direct our attention to. Ah, yes. The first one is on page 19. It's right at the end of the second section in that last paragraph. And again, th like I said at the beginning, I think there's lots of similarities between process and Bardianism because they're both criticizing and modifying quote-unquote classical theism. Different ways, different reasons, but they're both doing that. And so uh, Gutton describes Hartshorn's uh, kind of metaphysical approach. He says the key categories are not substance, but they're now quote-unquote event and relation. And this made me think of something George Hunsinger says about Karl Barth in his book How to Read Karl Barth. He says for Barth, he's not interested in static conditions but in dynamic relations, eventful relations. And so this emphasis on event and relation, I think, is another key point of convergence between a Bardian approach and a process approach. Another uh, quick point of convergence on 21, at the top of the page, the paragraph on the top of there, not before the full paragraph, uh, there's this line from Gutton describing Harpshorn, real compassion on God's part here would seem to require genuine relation and even suffering. In other words, if God is going to be related to the world in any significant way, that relation has to be real, it has to have an impact on God. And putting this in terms of compassion and suffering just made me think of Jürgen Moltmann, uh, who is in interesting in broad ways within a Bardian stream, uh, and uh, really emphasizes this point, especially in his Christology, how God also suffers along with Jesus. Not exactly in the same way, uh, but nonetheless suffers. And so that's another interesting point of convergence for me there. And then finally, on page 22, um, uh, Bardian theology is a species of uh, dialectical theology, and it involves uh, other uh, thinkers as well, people like Rudolf Bultmann. And Gutten describes uh, Hartshorn's approach to theology 
as it relates to the language of faith, the language of worship, what Lindbeck would call first order theological discourse, and uh, describes Hartshorn's approach as demythologizing that, as a kind of conceptual redescription of the sort of language that Christians use on Sundays. And of course, throwing the language of demythologization in there, you're going to start ringing Rudolf Bultmann bells and put us right back into this dialectical theological conversation with Bart and others. So, I mean, my experience reading this uh, criticism and modification from a process perspective of quote-unquote classical theism was to say, hey, uh, there's a lot of interesting convergences here, and uh, but they, they ultimately take different routes in what they're going to do. Does that make sense to you? It does. I think, though, we might find a few more areas of convergence as we go along. We might. Who knows? We're just going to have to wait and see. Are we done? <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to say about Hartshorn before we go? On there, Hartshorn and classical theism? We had a question from our last... Ah, uh, yes. Uh, audience question. An audience question that I would like to answer. Someone asked, is process theology Protestant or Catholic? And I can say with authority that it is neither and both and everything else. <laughs> and everything else. Almost. <laughs> so who are, who are some prominent process thinkers working right now and how do they fall on the Catholic Protestant spectrum? Okay, well one of our one of the early and very influential process theologians is T.R. de Chardin, and he was a Jesuit, and another Jesuit is working in process theology as well. Um, that is Norman Pittenger. Hmm. And so two, two Catholic theologians have found process metaphysics and process theology to be very helpful as they struggle with particularly Catholic questions. Mm -hmm. um, my own advisor, Roland Faber, uh, was teaching at a Catholic university in Austria before he came to Claremont Graduate University. So process theology has a wide appeal. Schubert Ogden is Methodist, and John Cobb is Presbyterian Methodist as well. Excuse me, John. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what was Hartshorn? Do we know? What was Hartshorn? He studied at Chicago. Hmm. Does that help? Maybe. I'm not sure. Well, maybe that can be an answer for next time. I'm well, more interested in people's theology than <laughs> <laughs> in their denomination. Fair enough. We'll, but, we'll leave that to others to go Google and track down for themselves if they're interested. Absolutely. <laughs> but in answer to that question, then, process theology, or process metaphysics at least, has lent itself to uh, uh, their... Uh, Iqbal in Islam used um, process metaphysics, and we just mentioned a few Catholics. Then Harold Kushner, uh, working in the Jewish faith, used process metaphysics. And there are lots of people who don't espouse any kind of religious faith who are also uh, using process metaphysics in their pursuits of sciences and social sciences. So, we're happy. <laughs> well, that's the neat thing about metaphysics, right? Anybody can do it. <laughs> oh yeah, anybody can do metaphysics. Please, well, you, 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 you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Anybody who wants to gets to work at it and do it. <laughs> Alright, sign us out before I say anything stupider than that. Thank you so much for joining us again today. We will be starting on the second chapter, A Dipolar Doctrine of God, in Colin Gunton's book, Becoming and Being. Being and Becoming. No, Becoming and Being. I was right to begin with. <laughs> So stay tuned for installment so number three. Read along with us and, and, and send us your questions. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.